There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. From the Intercontinental Hotel in Dubai Festival City. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 special. Live at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. Hear from the world's greatest writers. You are listening to Sonal and Noni, and we have been talking about a range of subjects today that are really, I think, movements in today's day and age, right? The environment, sustainable living, this is something, I mean, in big thanks to Greta Thunberg that everybody is talking about right now. And we have Dr. Tony Juniper, I'm going to say that right this time, a renowned environmentalist and writer, and he's been working in the field of environmentalism for up to 30 years. 35 now, I 35 think. 35 years. Yes. Dr. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Really lovely to meet you. And now, so we were just talking about how long you've been in this field 35 years. Tell us a little bit about the narrative then when you first got interested in the subject, how you decided this was going to be your profession, compared to the kind of discussion that we're seeing today. How has it evolved? So I grew up um, with a fascination for wildlife, for plants, animals, birds, reptiles, fossils. And that took me into the world of conservation. And in the 1980s, when I was becoming involved in this, conservation was really about rare animals and plants and trying to stop them disappearing. And since then, the discussion has evolved and it's changed. And today, it's a far bigger, far wider conversation, which is not only about people protecting rare animals and plants, it's about humans and the dependence we have on the natural world and the extent to which this is not only about beautiful creatures, this is about the future of civilization and indeed our economy and this is what much of my writing has been about during recent years and that connection between people and nature and the extent to which we depend upon healthy natural systems I think now is the modern conservation narrative and it's different to how it was it's not saying it's completely um, removed that dimension about protecting the natural world for its own sake we still need to do that obviously but it's now far broader it's far deeper and it's much closer to people and the kinds of societies we want to live in and actually the other really really big change that has happened over that period since I got involved with this in the middle 1980s is the extent to which now we have this whole new dimension that wasn't even being talked about then called climate change, mm. which is this whole big wraparound. And to some extent, actually, I would say that climate change has become the environmental issue to the point where it's kind of blinding us a little bit to the, to the breadth of this, because climate is only one aspect and it's fundamentally linked to the fate of the natural world, um, and not least in questions of deforestation and, and some of these other uh, damages we're causing to nature, which is a big part of the emissions causing the climate change. Mm. So it's very broad, it's very deep, and it's now increasingly touching people. Can I just ask, you've been working on this for 35 years. You've just, you've just elaborated to us how it's changed, how the problem's grown, how it's expanded. How do you not lose faith? How do you keep your optimism? Because I've heard you talk about optimism. Um, so the main source of optimism is the fact that what we've been doing actually has been working. So the very fact that we're sitting here having this kind of conversation um, is a sign of how the times have changed. And that is in large part down to various environmentalists and scientists and organizations just pressing on with this in the certain knowledge that we do have solutions at hand. And so the more that we can see people embracing the issues 
and the more that we can see the demand for the solutions bubbling up from the grassroots, which it is, and you can see it in all sorts of things, people changing their diet, people rejecting plastic, people switching to electric vehicles, people uh, getting involved with recycling, avoiding food waste, all of this stuff is becoming normal and it wasn't the case until quite recently. So optimism for me comes from the fact that what we've been doing appears to be working. It's quite late in the day and the changes that we're seeing now, ideally we would have seen these back in the 1960s, mm. but we didn't. And so better late than never maybe is the um, slogan we use for this. Yeah, I mean, we have to do what we can from the current day, definitely. Exactly. And is it enough though? Not a, no, not by a long way, not yet. But enough is only going to come when we have the awareness and the appetite for change. So that's the first job, is to spread the awareness and get the appetite for change, and then the change can, can occur. But the thing is, trying to go straight to the change without people knowing what's going on or why we're changing, it's obviously difficult to impossible to do that. So we have to invest in this period of creating a consensus around both the scale and nature of the problem and then when we have that we can then start to slot in the solutions and we're just on the cusp of that right now this is this is the moment when it's beginning to happen and this year 2020 is hopefully the year when that awareness cascades upwards into the political realm and we get a big step up in global ambition this year through various treaties taking place at the tail end of 2020. In terms of global warming, I thought it was so interesting to hear you say that you know when you got started in this field, that it was not even really well understood. So you've no. seen the understanding of it develop and the concern rise. And of course, in recent years, we've we've heard and read a lot about how once we reach a certain level of climate change, that's one in 1.5 degrees of rise in temperature, that there is no going back. There could be catastrophic consequences for that. And yet, it seems almost unavoidable because of the direction that we're going. I mean, do you see that us reaching that mark and how severe is the damage going to be if we do? So we're, we're in the last moments of, of having choices about 1.5 degrees of warming. So the headline is, is that since the industrial era, the global temperature has risen about one degree as a result of the pollution that humans have left in the atmosphere. The pollution is going up every year. It just passed 415 parts per million this year uh, for the first time in several million years. And that is leading us towards a temperature increase of 1.5 degrees very soon in the sense of triggering that, that shift. And as you say, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have warned us about the consequences of going above 1.5 degrees. The other threshold, and these thresholds are artificial to some extent, but they do help us to put a number and to give a timetable. And so 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, these are the numbers being talked about. We're very close to that now. And so if we wish to have a reasonable chance of avoiding 1.5 degrees, the headline message is that we need to be cutting the emissions in half mm. during the course of this decade, cutting them in half again during the course of the following decade, cutting them in half again out to mid-century and getting to effectively zero emissions by around 2050. This is a pretty tall order given right. how the world presently works, of course. And I'm imagining also one of the reasons that can be a tall order is because you have users and consumers, you have governments, you have corporations, and I imagine they're all kind of pushing the responsibility onto each other in a way. Well, there's definitely an element of that. If you speak to the government, they'll say, um, 
Uh, very often, you know, it's about the consumer or the market. And if you speak to the companies, they'll say it's their customers. And very often they'll say the government hasn't given us a signal. So there is an element of, of buck passing that's been going on for decades. I do get the impression now, however, that people are beginning to join the dots. And, you know, it's becoming apparent that it's not any one of them, it's all three. We need the governments to be setting the legal frameworks, setting the standards, putting in place the regulations. We need the corporations to be developing new business models, new, new business strategies, and bringing forward new technologies. And we need consumers to be demanding different things. And if you put all of those three things together, then it starts to look like we can do something. And that's the point we're reaching now, where we're getting to the stage where consumers are willing to embrace a level of change. The companies have understood that they can continue to have good business in a different world. And the governments are in places beginning to put new regulatory frameworks in place. Not everywhere, of course, mm. um, but, it, but it is moving. But the urgency issue cannot be overestimated. The, the time now is very short. I want to talk a little bit about consumer behavior because I am someone who's concerned about the environment. I'm concerned about global warming when I hear about these things, but my actions are not perfect. You know, my actions don't necessarily reflect that. I think there are a couple things that happen. For one, I think there's a bit of a dissociation that people take safety behind or hide behind to think, okay, what's my one piece of plastic? What's my one plane ride from point A to point B? There's this kind of sense of I'm so small, I can't matter in the big picture. If I don't do this one action, it doesn't really add up. What, would you, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think we're all extremely powerful, and this is one of the things that um, people like Greta Thunberg have revealed to us, is that the power of an individual can be absolutely immense, and we can't all uh, achieve what Greta has achieved, but there's, there's an inspiration there, and I think um, an opportunity for us all to see that there's, there's three things, three domains in which all of us make a difference. So the first thing is our individual behavior. Do we put the plastic in the bin um, or in the recycling? And you know, that, that's a simple thing. But once you start to scale that up to everything that you do or many of the things that you do, it actually starts to make a material difference. And so those, those are the choices that we all, at, we all face every day. And then there's all the companies we buy products from, the consumer goods companies, the banks, the airlines even. All of these companies can have better environmental policies. And if we tell them that that's what we want, and if we start shopping and buying from the ones with the better policies, this sends shockwaves through the marketplace. And this is already evident, some companies beginning to move very quickly because they can see their competitors getting a march on them mm. by having higher environmental policies. And then the third thing we all do, at least in democracies we do, is we have a say in who is going to govern and lead us uh, in a political sense. And so voting, and even in those countries with different systems, requiring and asking the leaders to do things which represent the scientific evidence that we now have is another thing that we can all do. And so the idea that we're all powerless is, I think, well, it's completely wrong. It's, it's evidently wrong. Uh, but just getting equipped with the basic facts, the information, and then, of course, joining in with groups that um, undertake some of this work. WWF, Greenpeace, mm -hmm. and Friends of the Earth are amongst the environmental organizations that everyone can join in with to make a difference through building a collective voice as well as an individual voice. 
Can I get your advice on a specific situation? So we talked about how every person matters in making a difference to the collective impact that we're having. But let's say somebody is using plastic, they order their food and there's plastic takeout containers that come or they order from Amazon and there's just a ridiculous amount of packaging involved in that. As a consumer, what can you do to encourage those companies to create, because you don't want to avoid, you still need to do those things. You need to order products, you need to eat yeah. food sometimes when you can't cook. What are the things that you can do to in that situation? So the first thing is to go somewhere else. Uh, so in the UK now, there are takeaway food companies who've got rid of plastic, and there are some who haven't. And so find out who has and who hasn't, and buy food from those that have. That's quite a simple thing we can all do. And as I say, this, this sends a very powerful signal into businesses, and then they will all change. I mean, you know, it's a question of setting a standard, and it can be done from the top down via government, or it can be done by the bottom up by the consumer. And so trying to avoid that stuff, plastic for example, is something we can all put a bit of effort into. Uh, when it comes to, to internet shopping, I think, you know, tell Amazon, give them a bit of feedback. They have feedback on their websites, presumably, you can tell them. Uh, and if, um, you know, there's an option, go to a shop. Uh, walk to the shop, don't get a bag, and walk back home again with the thing that you've bought. I think what we have to do here is everybody who is listening, we're setting you a challenge. Pick one single action that you're going to do today, whether it's getting your reusable bag when you don't usually use them, whether it is reaching out to Amazon and sending them an email to say that you don't need things wrapped in 18 pieces of cardboard. <laughs> you know, we'd love to hear from you. We want to see you guys getting out and doing this kind of thing. Mm. Tony, tell us a little bit about what's in this book for people who might want to pick it up. So this book um, is trying to explain how we have suffered from a massive misconception over many decades. And the misconception is that environmental destruction has to be the price of progress. Mm. You hear there's some politicians who say we have to sacrifice the environment to achieve development. You hear it from corporations who say we have to balance uh, environmental goals against the price of goods and services. And this book is setting out how if we continue to damage the environment, then we don't have an economy at all because our economy is 100% built upon healthy natural systems. The water we drink, the air we breathe, all of the food that we eat, plus a myriad of other services is coming from the natural world. And the more we damage the natural world, the more we imperil the human future. And so it's an easy to read book with lots of stories. I just give you there the main message, but the, um, the book is, is uh, a world tour. Um, much of my work is in there going back many years and many of the things that I've seen that help to explain that broad point. And you've talked about the broad message there, but I think a lot of what people will focus on when it comes to the perceived contradiction between being sustainable and economic progress is yes. the urgency. So, okay, longer term, we need to focus on this, but in the right now, are people sacrificing economic growth for a future benefit, or can they be can you still see that level of economic growth that you want to see while enforcing more sustainable practices? What, what we're doing um, is we are running the risk of ending economic growth or economic development in the future as a result of degrading the environmental system to the point where our civilization and society will no longer be able to continue, certainly not 
as it exists now. So that's the risk. It's huge. It's massive. It's almost too big to even comprehend. But the idea that we have to find some accommodation between environmental damage and economic growth is, is, to my mind, completely wrong. What we have to do right now is to invest in the recovery of the natural environment in order for people to have any kind of a future in the centuries, never mind decades ahead. And we just talked about the climate issue. Literally, we're on the cusp now of triggering one and a half degrees, two degrees of global warming. If you look at the numbers coming from the post-Paris agreement period, we're on track to triggering above three degrees of global warming by the end of this century. And so this is um, potentially a catastrophe in the making. And we can continue, as we have been doing, to say it's too expensive, it's too complicated, we've got to find a balance between growth and the environment. But down that road, all we're doing is creating massive costs for the future, including people who are not yet born. So this is something that needs to be owned in the here and now, and we have to invent an economic system that can facilitate that change. And so this has been described by various people, and we have all of the thinking and knowledge we need to do that. It includes things like changing what we're measuring. Measuring GDP just basically tells us how much stuff we're using up. Mm. Why don't we measure how happy people are and how sustainable their lives are instead? We can do that. Why don't we change the role of corporations instead of just being there to generate returns for shareholders? Why don't we create a legal purpose for them to achieve sustainable development? And why don't we start to change the financial system so that money's being invested into things that are going to be part of the solution rather than things that are part of the problem, like industrial agriculture and fossil fuels? We could do that stuff. It's just a question of having the will to do it. And that's why I wrote that book, just to open people's eyes to how disastrously misconceived the current economic idea really is. I think another challenge, in addition to sort of the top-level economic growth or perceived you know, uh, challenges to that growth, is jobs. People yes. in the here and now who think, well, I've worked in this traditional resource industry yeah. for decades, and my father worked yeah. in this industry, and there's this, this resistance to change when it comes to reskilling as well. There is, and uh, this is where we need a plan. And so the transition plan needs to accommodate that question of what people are going to do. In agriculture, for example, we could have many, many more people working in farming, producing the food that people need. We've got rid of them over recent decades, and we've replaced the people with machinery, with chemicals, with fertilizers. A lot of the work that used to be done in agriculture was done by people. We still pay, but instead of paying wages, we're paying for people to manufacture pesticides. So there are alternatives to this. And looking at the energy sector, there's probably more jobs to be had in providing everybody with renewable energy compared with uh, fossil energy. And the good news about that in many geographies is that those jobs are spread right across the country. Building a nuclear power station or a coal-fired power station, it creates a few jobs in one place. If you get on the renewables routes, they tend to be dispersed. And if you couple that with energy efficiency, those jobs are dispersed as well. And in manufacturing, we could be inventing a circular economy. Instead of taking new resources out of the ground, we could be inventing new recycling industries, taking apart our computers, getting the precious metals out of them, putting them back into making new computers. That is a jobs-rich opportunity as well. But it requires us to join the dots and to see that this is not an alternative between jobs and growth on the one hand and the environment on the other. It's about creating an economy and jobs that are going to protect and restore the environment. It's a different proposition, but it's one that's now urgent. 
And in line with that also, when we talk about infrastructure, you're on a panel here tomorrow talking about mm. cities of the future and envisioning yeah. what cities of the future are going to be like, uh, especially when we take into account sustainability and the growing urgency for this. Tell us what you think the city of the future looks like. What is something that you would like to see, or let's say 20 or 50 years from now, what could you imagine our urban landscapes to look like that would incorporate better practices for the environment? So one thing is they wouldn't be so gray, they'd be green, literally green, mm. in the sense of being rich in vegetation and trees with green roofs and green walls. I saw a fascinating building in Milan where it was yeah. just trees growing up the entire exactly. side of the building. It's exactly what are. you're saying. Exactly that. And forests alongside the rivers, inside right. the cities, lakes, areas for people to enjoy the uh, benefits of the natural environment as well as reducing pollution. One of the most effective ways we've got for removing pollution from the air is trees, deciduous trees in our part of the world. And that's something that we should be designing into the cities of the future. Those cities should be zero waste. They should be taking all of the material that they're generating uh, in terms of what people need and then catching them all and turning them into new materials to be made into the next wave of consumption. They will be zero carbon. All of their electricity, all of their transportation and heating systems will be coming from renewables and will be electrical. And of course they need to be fed by sustainable agriculture coming mostly from the hinterland around the cities. And there's little glimpses of this in different parts of the world. Again, it can be done. We just need to have the imagination and the determination to do it. Now, we have time for just one last question, and I have to ask you, because we did mention it earlier. Uh, Greta Thunberg, what is it? I mean, and this is taking nothing away from people that have been championing for the environment for decades, like yourself, who've been working hard uh, behind this cause to make sure that changes are made. But what is it about this, I think, 17-year-old now, teenager, yeah. that has moved people so much that has yeah. created a mass movement like we've never seen before? Indeed. Um, th there's a number of things. I, th I think one thing that I saw quite early on, um, which certainly touched me, and I think a lot of people took a great deal from it, was her sitting outside the Swedish parliament with that little placard, School Strike for Climate Change, mm -hmm. and you got so much from that single picture, the power of an individual standing up for something that's absolutely massive and doing it in a way where she was brave enough to rock the system in a peaceful and constructive way, and she inspired then millions of young people across the world to do their own school strikes. That then snowballed into a, a bigger movement still, which then projected her as the spokesperson of this new movement, speaking for youth in particular, uh, onto the global stage. And I have to say that if there is one group who has moral authority on this subject like none other, it's the people who will inherit the consequences of what is now happening. And that's got to be the people who are young, the youngsters and the people who will be inheriting the consequences of the decisions that we're taking at the moment, which are really not reflecting their interests. And so they have a, a voice which has more authority on this than any other, because they are literally the people who will see the results of what we're now doing. A lot of people criticize how dramatic her tone is, how stern she is in sort of chastising the public. Is this, is this something when you see her speak in her impassioned speeches, how do you react to that, just on an emotional level? 
Um, well, um, she's got the same tone of voice that I've had for quite a few years. Right. And so I, I see a fellow traveler in kindred spirit, the kindred spirit, but from a different generation. And so um, I fully understand where she's coming from. The thing to bear in mind in all of this, of course, is that there's no single voice. And so she's one voice alongside people like the Prince of Wales, mm -hmm. alongside the scientists, alongside some world leaders, alongside some of the people running major companies who are all saying more or less the same thing. But they're different messengers bringing a different inspiration to different communities. But the contribution she's made has been absolutely huge and I, I take my hat off to her. Are you saying that people have tuned out to grumpy old men and they're, and they're now listening to grumpy <laughs> yes. young girls? Well, I'm very pleased to have um, some, some help finally after all these years. <laughs> Dr. Tony, thank you so much for that chat. We really appreciate My you. My pleasure. It's really great um, to talk to you. Speaking to us. And you've been here talking about your book, What Has Nature Ever Done For Us? Tell us where people can find more about you. Where can they follow you, find your um, books? Oh, there's various bits and pieces on, 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 the, on the internet. And so it's all there. People can find a, find a little more. And uh, hopefully one or two people will like to read that book. It, um, it's got some ideas in there that I think the world needs to know just at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Tony, thank you so much. My pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.